You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. The best of literature gives us, the readers, a better understanding of the world we live in and the stories we tell. The big and small things that make up the world around us and the often surprising connections between them. One of these writers who have dedicated her art to describing the complex layers of human nature and memory in a truly astonishing way is tonight's guest. My name is Lynn Rottem and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And I have the immense honor of welcoming you to tonight's event with Siri Hustvedt, which I now dare to call a friend of the House of Literature, since this is the seventh time that we welcome her to our stage. Yeah. And as before, the whole house is sold out, which I also think makes actually Siri Hustvedt one of our most popular authors throughout the House of Literature's existence. So that deserves another applause, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Through a number of novels, essay, and articles with extensive knowledge in fields such as neuroscience, psychology, literature, and art, Hustvedt has explored the mind, the body, and the female artist. And in her latest novel, Memories of the Future, future or Minderum Fremtiden, as it is called in Bodil Engen's Norwegian translation. Hustvedt well-known's passion for psychiatry and art history is, of course, present. And at the same time, I dare say this is Hustvedt's most playful novel, approaching issues of time and memory and writing in a refreshing, interdisciplinary, and a time-humoristic ways. In Memories of the Future, the well-established writer S.H. enters into dialogue with 20-year-old S.H. with her reflections, her writing, and her experiences. What has she forgotten, and how can she use her own memories? And another one of our most popular and loved authors and interviewers here at the House of Literature is Lynn Ullmann. And in her latest novel, Unquiet, Eurolia, she also examines the past, examines the past and how we remember. So please give them both a warm welcome. Actually, one of the nice things about coming here is that one gets such an elegant introduction. <laughs> thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Lynn. And thank you, Siri. And, and thank you. We've been together before. You know, we know each other a little bit. So this we do. is. We've been on stage before uh, together and we know each other a little bit. Yeah. And I am honored and very happy to welcome you and to be and here with you. I am today. honored. You could all know that um, I admire your work and I really love the last book enormously so thank you. it's and a mutual ad- admiration society up here thank you and I'm going to cut this short now <laughs> uh, thank you um, 
Siri, uh, I have been uh, reading this in many forms, memories of the future. I've been reading the American version and the British version, um, or editions. And I want to start by asking you about the cover, because you, you have drawings uh, throughout the book. Yep. And you have also, so you are an artist also. And you have drawn... That might be pushing it, but I made cover. some drawings for this book, and I, I, and I enjoyed doing I, it. Most of you, some of you will have the book or have read the book, and here in the British and the Norwegian cover, there's a beautiful drawing of a young naked woman with a knife flying over probably Empire, New York City, because yeah, it's Empire, Empire State, State, State Building. Building. And then this is the American woman, but she's all dressed up. She has clothes. So, so is this a coincidence? No, or because, did you want, it, and it was funny, my this? American publisher, Simon Schuster, asked me, they got the drawings for the book, and they said, we love the drawings, so why don't you make something for the cover? So I made The Flying Naked Girl. And I had a meeting, you know, with the, all the people who were planning the book, etc. And uh, they didn't like the cover. <laughs> and I, 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 I really pushed them. You know, nobody wanted to tell me what it was. My agent was there, and I kept saying, now, well, I understand that it's a nude, but, you know, there are lots of art books of nudes, and there's always a nude on the cover. And I said, I mean, if it were a Titian, would that be a problem? No, Titian wouldn't be a problem. I had to get back. My agent sent me a little note, and she said, Siri, it's the pubic hair. <laughs> So, who knew? Uh, uh, so in the United States, pubic hair on the covers of books is apparently not, not going to pass muster. So. I, I, I think we can write a whole new book about these two girls. That's uh, right. The, the dressed so, girl and the naked girl with the pubic right, hair. Right, um, right. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Alice in Wonderland reading, right. reading this book. Um, and Alice asks herself, you know, who am I? What am I? Right. You know, yeah. when she goes down the rabbit hole. And, and that question about the self, about the narrator. Right. Right. Who is writing? Who is telling? And also, who is listening? Who is on the other side right. of the wall or of the other side of the book? Right, right. Um, what... Thoughts, when you start writing a book like these, this, what, what thoughts do you have about well, actually, the narrator? I, I, uh, and, uh, and the narrator is called... S-H. S-H. Yes. Which is also, as I point out, um, the initials of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> and in English, the standard hero. So the role of the hero keeps coming back in this book. Yes. And there's a lot of play with literary conventions, Absolutely. literary forms. And also Siri uh, Hustvedt. And Siri Hustvedt. So, so, this so is when an investigation. I thought I was not going to say anything when the book was published, but I realized that there were many journalists who took this as my life. 
Mm. And I play with memoir in the book. And you know, in the United States, in the Anglo-American world, memoir and the confession are an, an old form. But here in Norway, it's different. It's come much more recently using the self in an auto-fictional way. Um, you know, this book is playing with my own identity, playing with my uh, the facts of my autobiography, but it's not my journal, it's not the novel I was trying to write, nothing that happens in the book is what's really invented. Um, and so I've spent quite a bit of time uh, listening to people ask me, did that happen to you? Did that happen to you? Did you really do that? Um, so mostly, Did that no. surprise you? Um, the, I think there's a kind of, uh, you know, obsession with the real. And this book is playing with memory and the imagination as actually a single fairly fluid uh, category. Um, at the same time, early in the book, the narrator says, you know, if you're one of those people who loves memoirs that are filled with specific details, you know, what your potatoes looked like on the, on the plate, uh, 38 years ago, I'm sorry, I will disappoint you because I do not remember. And those authors who claim to, re to have perfect recall of their hash browns, 38 years later, are not to be trusted. That's what I was <laughs> So, so the book is a, a real um, play with the idea of memory and uh, shot through with imagination. You yes, you said that memory and imagination go together. And you've written about this before, <clears throat> too, in your essays. How, though? How, so, where, how does memory and imagination okay, so go together? And what role does forgetfulness play in yes. all that? Well, forgetting is an interesting, not very well-studied phenomenon mm. in science, I can tell you that. Mm. What is much better studied now is the connections between memory and imagination or memory and what they call future thinking. And the future, of course, <clears throat> is... An invention, because we can never get to the future. It's endlessly deferred. It's we're never going to step into it. But <clears throat> Vico, the uh, uh, early 18th century Italian uh, historian and philosopher, talked about memory and imagination as the same faculty. And now, in neuroscience, it seems quite clear that people who have damage to the hippocampus closely allied with autobiographical memory, not only uh, remember poorly, they don't imagine well. Mm. And so what is the link? Well, it's mental imagery, right? When we remember, we see images, most of us, about 96% of, of human beings, according to some people. Uh, and, uh, and that's the same thing we do when we're fantasizing or imagining. And in order to imagine, what do we need? We need uh, expectations of what will happen that are founded on memories of the past. So you see this is, these quickly blur one into the other. And also we do not have original memories in the brain, right? You are not retrieving what they call an engram. Every time you recall something, it's subject to change. 
And there are lots of experiments that show that that is indeed what happens. So when you worked on this book, which is, um, you've talked in earlier essays about the in-between place. Yes, I the have. The in-between. Right. And it's certainly in-between fiction and non-fiction or fiction and essay. It's in-between <laughs> you, yeah. S-H, and you, and, and S-A, and the, the and investigator. I mean, the, right, an the, investigation and a right. narrator who investigates. So the, so there we have the Sherlock Holmes. Right. So, but it's it's it's... And it's all the time in that playful area of the in-between, which I was wondering if that's akin to, to forgetfulness, because forgetfulness is also a place where... where <clears throat> well, she does forget. I mean, I realize I've been here so many times now, and when she said that, I thought, well, I'm really getting old. You and mean of here, course, here, in this house. place, in this uh, real place right here. But that I... Um, Uh, that when you're as old as I am and you look back at, I actually never did keep a diary or, or a journal, but I do have notes and letters from my past and sometimes people are mentioned, vanished, vanished. And they seem to be people that I had something to do with, that were somehow playing a significant role, at least for a short time in my life. No memory. But do that. you think that that forgetfulness, that, that <clears throat> sort of blank space, also encourages the imagination? Because Listen, you know, there, you there are people who remember too much. There's a great uh, uh, neurologist, uh, Luria, Russian neurologist, who wrote a book about uh, a man he called the Numinist, and he really remembered so much. The burden on that, he had a kind of uh, a stupendous memory. And uh, the crowdedness, the, uh, this produces too much. I think we probably, our forms of amnesia are important, but what is true is that most people remember what we care about, right? And probably in evolutionary terms, you know, of the species, what matters is not that we have accurate recall, but we, what we, that we remember what it was good for us and what was bad for us. And we have enough memory to avoid those situations in the future. I think that um, I, I want to talk to you about that because I want to talk to you about fear and yeah. anger. But I want you, before we talk about that, I want you to, to read from oh, the, right. the, the opening. Yeah. So this is just, this is the first paragraph of the novel. And actually, the whole novel kind of blooms out of this little paragraph. Did you write the first paragraph first? When you wrote this book? I did, but I always, uh, I always uh, uh, rewrite it many times. But, but it was, uh, the, it, first it thing was the first thing. It okay. was the first thing. Chapter one. <laughs> Years ago, I left the wide, flat fields of rural Minnesota for the island of Manhattan to find the hero of my first novel. When I arrived in August of 1978, 
He was not a character so much as a rhythmic possibility, an embryonic creature of my imagination, which I felt as a series of metrical beats that quickened and slowed with my steps as I navigated the streets of the city. I think I was hoping to discover myself in him, to prove that he and I were worthy of whatever story came our way. I wasn't looking for happiness or comfort in New York City. I was looking for adventure. And I knew the adventurer must suffer before he arrives home after countless trials on land and sea or is finally snuffed out by the gods. I didn't know then what I know now. As I wrote, I was also being written. The book had been started long before I left the plains. Multiple drafts of a mystery had already been inscribed in my brain, but that didn't mean I knew how it would turn out. My unformed hero and I were headed for a place that was little more than a gleaming fiction, the future. Mm. So that's it. Thanks. The hero. <laughs> The future. As I was writing, I was also being written. Written, yeah. Oh. So that's, Tell me about yeah. that sentence. So that's one of the strange things I think about uh, all human lives is that we uh, all have, as I was saying earlier, expectations for what will come. And we uh, many of those expe expectations are unconscious. But we also have ready-made cultural narratives that we all inherit. They're, they become part of us. So the hero on his way is certainly an old cultural narr narrative, mm -hmm. uh, Odysseus and his adventures. Mm -hmm. um, but also things like... Um, uh, It ends with marriage, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, that kind of script, the romantic script or the romantic comedy that people get together and then it's as if life stops. Uh, we, we have these uh, well, narratives. It's very gendered. I, mean, I that, brought that up. I mean, I think mm. they're often... So the hero, she's looking for the hero. She assumes that it's a male hero. Because he's... As, because so many of the heroic figures in our uh, inherited culture have indeed been uh, male. And one of the reasons is, of course, that traditionally men have, much, have had much more possibility of movement. Uh, you know, women have been home. Of course, women have also been working, depending on your class, for many, many centuries. Um, but uh, so I think we do, we carry around these uh, stories and enact them to one degree or another. And that's the part of being written? That's certainly part of being written, yeah. Mm. You've written um, in an essay, uh, I am slow, 
Slow, slowness is about fear to face the material that must be written. That's right. Was this novel? Which okay. at the heart yeah. of it has a story of violence yeah. and vulnerability. Yeah. Was that the kind of material? Was it, was it, were you scared? Did so you have this fear is, when you were... <laughs> this is interesting. I'm, I, I, I remember very well writing that uh, uh, essay, and I was from your last book. It, yeah. yeah, and yeah. I was, you know, I was thinking that uh, usually if things are going wrong when you're writing, for me anyway. It's about fear. That you're not taking on the material that you're supposed to. The, the material that you're being led to, essentially. Possibly unconsciously or even by the story as it's unfolding. Before I wrote this novel, I worked on another novel for about a year. And it was also about memory. It was about time. You know, it had all these uh, philosophical excursions in it. And it, I don't know. It was just... Something was terribly wrong with it. How it was like know? it was dead. How did you? How oh, because I read it. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I I kept reading it over and thinking, how can I fix this? It was, there, it was a kind of stillborn project, and that mm. has not happened to me for some time. So, I was quite alarmed, and I thought I could save it. Um, and when I was trying to save it, I had this idea that the narrator of that book might hear a neighbor through the mm. wall. And then I thought, no, that's a whole other book. But interestingly enough for writers in the room, uh, sometimes failure, this kind of really failing at a task, is a way of working out what you're really supposed to be writing or what you then write. Because when I started this thing, once I had the woman through the wall and... I had been working on time and memory. Actually, for years, I've been thinking about this. It just kind of came. So even the terrible scene, uh, the violent scene, uh, in this book, in this book, I arrived. I, I, I knew that th that this was going to happen, and I just wrote it. You know, in a kind of trance. So the whole book was. Uh, Pretty much trance material, but it was also after spend you know having written 150 or 200 pages of you know complete dreck. <laughs> so I think and that's maybe what I needed to do in a way. Just super interesting. I mean, and I I talked about. I mean, the quote was about fear, which you and then you told the story about failure. So so failure for you as a writer must be equivalent to 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 fearing i mean it's i mean funny. is that I, a fearful I, I, thing I, you know i think when i was younger I, when i was younger it was much fright, more frightening now i think i've become more patient with myself but when you uh, you realized that this book the first one that you didn't yes. write that I just, brought I, you to this i, one, I put it away scared? were you no i wasn't so scared you know, there's a relief in, in getting rid of things, mm. uh, too. And uh, so, no, 
I, I, but, but I think that the failure could have had to do with finding and uh, boldly moving toward the material that, that was important. Mm. Yeah. Was this violent story in the book that you were writing first? No, this, it was another kind of thing. Which is a story thing. of yeah. an almost rape. Yeah, it's in an the almost near rape. very part of this book. Yes. Which has so many stories in it. In yes. it and stories within stories. That's right. And different time frames. Um, but in the very, very center. Yeah. I mean, I think I actually counted the pages. It was right in the heart. Yeah, it was right it, in the middle. It is There's dead a center. story of a young girl, young SH. Yeah. 24 years old or 23 years old who is almost raped by a young man right. who follows her home. That's right. And, and it's just there, and it's vicious, and it's violent. Yeah, it's horrible. And the whole... Yeah. It builds up to that, and it... I mean, the book, that's the hard end. I mean, yeah. the, everything it un, 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 goes yeah. out from that and, and you goes know, into so that. The, the, so was the, that was that the, also a kind of material that was? I knew, I to, knew, I wanted to, to. I, I, I knew that when I, you know, when this thing finally took off. Um, but also, you know, writing novels, I've often felt is not only like remembering what never happened; it's also like dreaming while awake. Right, so uh, the things appear, and I think the structure of this book just began to unfold, and that it's like a it's I, I've thought of it as an origami. Mm -hmm. So it starts as a flat piece of paper, and then that same paper starts to fold in on itself until you have a bird in flight, um, and that. There are so many of the stories. One of the refrains is one story becomes another. Mm -hmm. And the stories that are in the book are all, in a way, overdetermined as dreams are, in the sense that they are often dealing with forms of, uh, uh, you know, the patriarchy or forms of male condescension from a very violent act to much, you know, smaller. Um, aggressive uh, treatment, that she is unable to really understand the young one mm. until a certain point. She doesn't have a vocabulary to articulate what's the matter. And I think the course of the book is through the imagination she um, is able to get a language to the keys Mm -hmm. So there are two, there's a knife and there's a key. And the knife keeps coming back. Early on, she says, sometimes memory is a knife. You know, painful memories that keep stabbing you, if you will. But there's a literal knife in the book, too, that she's sent by a friend after um, the sexual assault. And she uh, calls it the Baroness after... Um, a Dada artist and poet who becomes rather important in the book, too. Um, back to, you were saying um, that the young SH doesn't have a vocabulary to 
describe well, I what think is happening to her. And, and <coughs> I mean, I, I, she says, she, it says, it's time for you to go. He looked down at me, his eyes indulgent, patient. You don't really mean that, he said. <laughs> I'm afraid I do. I must have believed then that my will was still in play, which is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing. I must have believed then that my will was still in play. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking and revelatory thing all at once. Well, and she's so, that, she's that so she, polite, you know. She remains polite. And I think, you know, you asked me about rage before. The, she is so frightened of her own rage mm. that it doesn't, it, that the young woman is really unable to express it. So she doesn't have a language, um, a way to articulate this rage. And I think this is very common. It's very common, especially among, you know, in the United States, middle-class white women. Um, but there's a long European heritage um, of this, especially, again, among a certain class, um, that the well-behaved, definitely not angry, definitely not aggressive uh, woman is valued and is still valued in the culture very highly. Uh, and women who are, um, you know, not deferent, not cooperative, not apologizing, are often punished. So the movement in this book is from moving out of that position into a place uh, where she can articulate her rage. And her vehicle that she uses in between is a switchblade that her friend Fanny sends her, and she's so scared of it. You know, it, it is an illegal weapon. She hides it behind first Don Quixote and then Withering Heights. She's a very well-read young woman. <laughs> she's extremely well-read. She's extremely well-read. And, uh, and then she wonders later, maybe it should have been behind Don Quixote. But um, it ends up behind Withering Heights. And that... Knife, then, fortunately, she doesn't use it. But, uh, but it is, I think, the sign of the rage she can't articulate. So she needs it. She gets a knife, and there's a lot of talk about keys, you know, opening doors, moving into other stories and other places, um, other landscapes by having a key. And, um, you know, by the end of the book, it's not that kind of key. Right, it's the keyboard. Right, so so there's a lot of play on these um, knives and keys. You've written about rage before, and rage as as a woman artist. I mean, you yes. said um, in an essay, the fury belongs especially to women making art art of all kinds, because women artists are put into boxes that are hard to climb out of. The box is labeled women's art. <laughs> um, when was the last time you heard of anyone talk about a man artist, a man novelist, a man composer? Of course, this is... Right. You're yeah. right. I mean, is this rage 
that goes through, simmers through this whole book uh, from young S.H. to the older narrator S.H. Um, <laughs> you, is that some? Is that also? I, I know you're getting there. Yeah. Is that also? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> is that the energy that you are writing with? No, yeah, I have I, to think no. about the question because I no. have to because I'm wondering if this is something no, that so this is we a, struggle with. As yeah, I think this is a a, a terrific question, um, and uh, you know, anger. I, I've thought about a, a lot about this. Anger is generally um, an emotion that is directed outward, right? So that it has an object. And when you're angry, you're usually angry because you want the situation to be different, right? You want to change something about what's happening. And that, I think, is... Um, that's the positive aspect of anger. If you're... So, I mean, this is true in psychiatry and, you know, psychotherapy. People who are so terrified of their own aggression have a tendency to turn it inward and it becomes unrecognizable. It becomes sadness or self-blame, guilt, right? So for me, one of the uh, parts of getting older and becoming mature is being able to recognize what one should feel guilt about. We like guilt. Guilt is a good emotion to have when we, uh, uh, you know, commit uh, uh, bad acts. But I think that there's that recognizing when it's not your damn fault is really important, you know. And I see this a lot, especially with women, that you know, if someone mistreats them, they think, what did I do? Well, that's... Well, that, nothing, that right? So this whole, is important. That goes through the whole book. It yeah. goes through... She says somewhere, I don't have the exact quote, because culpability is there all the time. She feels... She feels... The young SH feels guilty, and then she feels ashamed... And then even four decades later, she says, you know, she can't do anything about the situation. So there seems to me that there's anger and there's frustration and right. a lot of sadness also. That's right. And the older... That's uh, right. But she's looking back, Looking right? back. So she can't help the girl. She can't help the younger self. But she does self. help her, right? And how does she? does she help her? Yes. So this is it. The, the book is about... The movement of that young uh, person out of uh, stasis. And how is that done? Through the mechanics of the book and the writing itself. So what happens at the end of the book? The narrator is already up in the sky. <laughs> she's already flown up there and she's joined... Just by the Baroness Else von Freytag Loringhoven, uh, who is who is a poet, who, who is you a, refer, an artist you refer to a lot in the, the book, book, and also she becomes the name the, of the knife, the Baroness. Yes. So the Baroness is the imaginative vehicle of insurrection and 
subversion that carries the narrator into another place. Okay. She writes herself elsewhere, into the sky, into flight. It's a happy ending. <laughs> it's an odd ending, but it's a happy ending. So that really is, for me, the trajectory of the novel. I want you to read <laughs> before we talk more about... I might you know, keep you a little more in the, okay, in the sadness right. and the happiness because on the other side of the wall... Yes. There's a woman who wails, I am sad, I am sad, I am sad. Yeah. Poor anyway, but I want you to read on page, you know. Uh, so this is uh, after, this is, yes, it's page 176. Okay. Uh, this is young SH. Um, no, let's see. No, I think it's, um, it's not. It's the old. Uh, is there pity in me for my almost rapist? Must I descend further than pity? This is a reference to Simone Weil, um, who talks about pity and, um, yeah, and charity. But anyway, is there charity in me for the not-so-standard hero or the hero become villain or the villain who briefly looked like a hero? No. My soul is not as large as Simone Veil's. I am not a saint. More than anything, I want to banish him from the landscape of memory. Annihilate his presence in my mind. But that is not possible. Instead, I am, I am asking him to leave the book now. <laughs> and please, I say to him, close the door behind you. We will not see him in the flesh again. He will not return to defend himself or tell his version of the events as they unfolded. The police never arrived because they were never called, just as they were never called and never arrived for Mrs. Malachuk, reference to a beaten up woman, the patient of her father's. The only person on the case is the introspective detective, another imaginary person. And she finds herself on the scene only after the crime has been committed and the perpetrator has fled, and she doesn't have a stomach for pursuit. It's only her second case, after all, and she's still green. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Was that it? Yeah. Yeah. But I was... <laughs> but you see, the thing that's good about it is... Laughing, is I'm laughing because I love that thing that she's just telling him to get out of the book. So, you see, certain kinds of power too, is afforded by uh, the authority of the text. Right? And... That's intensely pleasurable, <laughs> right? So it's a way of repairing, redressing, rewriting uh, uh, the knife. And you said the knife. 
but also a life. Well, memory is the knife. But yes, but can we, can you, as an author, can a narrator simply, you know, bid him adieu, tell him to leave? Well, we know actually after. Can he, but well, can, can, I mean, can that be done through language? Because, uh, the, because, <laughs> because there's also this tremendous sadness throughout the book. It seems to me what the book is, yes, there's the happy ending, but there's also this struggle between the narrator who wants to tell the would-be rapist, you're gone, you are gone. But then he's, he, the, 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 the violence... The sadness so, and okay. the shame is not so, gone. It's so, there. So I think so. The the, the at least for me, the as deep, the reader. So the the but you know, this every reader reads a different. I know, but so I'm so, asking you. So we invent we, things just, together. So while I was writing, I mean, I really did have a lot of fun writing this book, and I really did laugh a lot, um, and I uh, I enjoyed enormously writing the book, which is not, not, again, to say that the violence isn't real, that it's not part of the narrative, and that the play is also uh, with things that are, are, are quite terrible, including, uh, you know, forms of humiliation that are not as terrible as the almost rapist. Uh, but I think this is precisely uh, why it's important to do the work of re-remembering, if you will. And very close to the end of the book, there's a secret person who emerges, and it says, there's an unknown character in this book, and it's the character of the doctor. It's just a paragraph, but you know that the narrator has been in a psychotherapeutic or psychoanalytic situation. And there's, you know, it's just a little sign that we're talking about reconstructing inherited and uh, told narratives that are then retold. And it's what you were saying about, or what I was saying, we were talking about rage, you know, uh, and all that, that one uh, finds a story in the course of psychoanalysis, for example, that is more emotionally true, mm -hmm. right? Most people walk in with a story that is either idealized or wrong or uh, lacking ambivalence or whatever it happens to be. And the exercise, I think, of retelling is extremely liberating. And I really believe that it has uh, the force of motion, it's emotional motion. <laughs> yeah. It's retelling in a psychoanalytical setting some um, related to the retelling or the telling in a in a fictional or a novel 
Is well, literature yeah. and uh, how, how closely are they linked? Well, yeah, you know, listen, as I, I remember my, my own analyst, because I have been a uh, psychoanalyst, psychoanalysis said, you know, if you actually listen to sessions, I mean, that are taped, it's so boring that you die. <laughs> and, uh, you know, anyone who's done this or done forms of psychotherapy, which, you know, talk therapy, you realize that, you know, it's endless circling and grinding. I mean, it's really, really boring stuff. And, and, and one doesn't uh, want to read that. Uh, so art and uh, a psychoanalytic session are indeed very different. Yes. Uh, I but I do think that the that there is a parallel uh, route toward discovery, right? I mean, uh, psychotherapy works when people are open to whatever is happening. And the same happens, I think, when one is making art mm -hmm. of any kind. And reading, and reading art, too. That there's an openness that's required um, to feel the book. Mm -hmm. And this book is a very rhythmical text. Mm -hmm. I intentionally had that little beginning about the hero as an embryo of these rhythms and walking in the city because the prose is very rhythmic and the structure of the book has a kind of rhythm to it. There are times where it's close to a, a song. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was very important to me. And I also think that um, you know, we, we heal ourselves with uh, rhythmic repetitions as well. Um, and the witches use, oh, sorry. <laughs> There are witches. There are witches. The, there are yeah. witches in the book. <laughs> Sorry, there are witches. I, I just want to pick up yeah. very quickly um, yeah. uh, because you said it was a this the rhythm and that you the voice uh, is so important. I mean the the, yeah. the, 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 the sound of the language. I yeah. Mean, you think that writing is a, is a listening. It's almost like a listening. Yeah, um, I, I I do endeavor. I do. That the ear is and the most important? Who are those people that, you know, show up? I mean, in your mind. It's very strange. And different voices. I mean, I know, but I, I don't know sometimes. I don't know who those ladies are who, you know, rescue. I mean, they just, they come to me. And there are ladies who rescue the young essay. Yeah, so it's an almost rape because yes, there's a rescued. kind of deus ex machina that... <laughs> arrives on the scene thankfully. Someone that you, I mean, there are a lot of s female saviors uh, in, yeah. in the book, and you yeah. have mentioned one several times, and, and, and a character in the book almost, as you have mentioned yes. many times, in the this, Baroness, and is yeah. the Baroness, Elsa yeah. von Freitag Loringhoven. Artist who who knows about her? I ask everyone this. I was said, hey, has anyone heard of her before? The Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven? No. Okay. And she wrote poems. I mean, she is, she is someone that is very, very important to the young SH, to the old uh, SH. older SH. I won't say old, but the older SH. Old. Uh, young SH, and also to this book, and becomes important to the reader. And she, else, who is a, was a real person. She was a real person, yeah. Uh, and has now... Uh, her public poems are published. I mean, she's yes. dead now, but she wrote poems you write like howls or burps. 
that came from deep in the diaphragm. Yeah. And so she, tell, and tell you me, can and, get them. And, in the, and here she's also called the knife. Yeah. Uh, or the knife is knife called is the baroness. Knife is named after so, the baroness. So what, who, is, who was... Who is Elsa, Elsa the Baroness to you? And who? Oh, well, I knew about her for a long time because she, she actually was, when I was young, uh, I read about her because she was mentioned in Dada literature. This has always interested me, uh, the Dada movement. And, uh, and actually, Ezra Pound, she's in one of the cantos. Mm. Um, she published the little review in the same issue with James Joyce. Uh, she was a friend of Duchamp's. I knew about all that. Uh, but it wasn't until 2010 that there was a biography of her published by a scholar named Irene Gamal, MIT Press. I bought it. I was fascinated by this Why? story. Well, because she was... Uh, I, first of all, I think the poems are remarkable, but also she was an artist, a visual artist, um, and she turned her own body into a work of, of Dada art. So she would appear in the streets with like a postage stamp for a, a thing with big silver spoons for earrings. She wore tin cans as a bra. Um, she was just decked out. She startled people. She was, um, she had, she fell in love with men and just went right after them. Um, she slept with men and women. Uh, she was just, she's a kind of insurrectionist wonder. Who was suppressed? By the way, really her work has been suppressed for years, and she is the author of Duchamp's Urinal. And you write about that. It's in the book. The research is in the book. Uh, I had, there's an article I wrote for The Guardian about this. She is one of many women whose work has been suppressed and um, ignored and even, you know, misattributed to someone else. So, uh, yes, she's an important turning figure in the book. Why? Because huh. she's an image of liberation and freedom, yeah. And someone who went her own way. I mean, it's very sad. She died in 1927, impoverished in Paris. I mean, it's a sad story. And at the same time, many, many years later, um, her reputation, believe me, despite the fact that there's usually one or two people who have heard of her in an audience, it's rising. I was just, in my last novel, The Blazing World, Margaret Cavendish was in there, um, 17th century natural philosopher who I love. In Trondheim, they just had the International Margaret Cavendish Conference, and I gave a paper there, and she's rising. 300 years later, and I have to tell you, Cavendish, you're going to like this, was voted by the philosophical journal The Mind as philosophy's it girl <laughs> of the year. <laughs> you, you, look, you, look, you look so pleased. Yes, you look super pleased and super happy, and it's exciting, and I share that enthusiasm. <laughs> and I mean, when you discover, when you start to write about forgotten, crazy, wild, rebellious women yes. artists who are burping and howling and doing crazy stuff... Does it 
does it give you, I mean, it must give you a rush. I mean, it gives you a rush just talking about it. Yeah, it gives me a rush. Um, I, you know, what, I also, what, I mean, what is so, that so, ca- so I think, you know, so there are two sides to this. One is just the rush. There's something wonderful about, you know, looking at someone who defies conventions to such a degree um, in the very early part of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. Um, even as a Dada person, and they were radicals, she was an outrage even for them. They didn't know what to do with her. (laughs) And and, And it was, of course, that she was a woman and... Even the Dada artists, they were full of expectations about what a woman was supposed to do. Uh, Duchamp did say, you know, the Baroness is not a futurist, another movement, she's the future. He knew, and I think they knew how, so the work is, is, is radical, but it's also really interesting. And the artworks that remain, that, w- that have been saved, and some of the photographs of other artworks are truly interesting to me. Just as I think Margaret Cavendish is a philosopher from that period who offers an original philosophy that coincides very strongly with my own critiques of uh, what we've inherited from the scientific revolution. So these are not just images of like wildness that give me a little rush, but they are people that I think should be part of the historical record Mm. in ways that have been denied to them. And the denial has been because uh, they are women. I mean, no other reason that I can see. So a big part also of your writing essays, nonfiction, fiction, what I've been reading of you for many, many years is really reviving women artists and altering the sort of the canon wall, you know, altering how we remember not only our, discussing how we remember our own lives and the lives around us, but also how we remember history, the history of art, the history of literature. So that's another way of rewriting the narrative. So that's one of the narratives, you know, being written. And then it says very explicitly, the introspective detective says, well, maybe you can bring her back. Maybe you and others will be part of bringing the Baroness back into art history. Um, Just as Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle, is being brought back into the history of philosophy. Uh, You know, it's not as if it's hardened and forever. It is hard. The canon. The canon is not. It changes. And and it has always moved about, uh, both in art history and in the history of literature. So you're uh, an artist and a woman... Do you uh, experience also in this our day and age that there is a different way of reading and receiving your work? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, this is you know I, I think too that you know it's, it's something you don't you you can't believe when 
when this stuff happens to you. I, I mean, you can, you, you and I can maybe, but you know, I've been, I would say, <laughs> I, I remember doing me. an interview and this journalist, it was a man, but it's happened with women too, said, well, we know of course that um, Paul Oster taught you, my husband, another writer, taught me neuroscience and psychoanalysis. And you know, you, 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 you're just, and I think, you know, you have to think. Now, what would be, where, how did that happen? Um, and you realize, and you know, it's happened to me repeatedly, things like that. Um, <laughs> that it's simply because he's the man. Mm -hmm. You know, you think they must have gotten the information wrong or, you know, must have been, but... No, and, and also, some of this does go on the internet. I remember explaining to someone that my husband had not read Jacques Lacan, but I used him in my dissertation, and I'd probably talked to him about Lacan, and this thing just exploded on the internet that Paul Oster is a you know, an expert on Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst. And, you know, I've spent years sort of you know, people asking me about his great expertise in Jacques Lacan. And it's, you know, it's ridiculous, this stuff. Or Bakhtin, he borrowed a story that I told him for the movie Smoke. Because M.M. Bakhtin, the Russian theorist, smoked his German manuscript. It's a wonderful story in the movie, and it has a great place. But I cannot tell you how many people have run up to me and said... Um, oh, well, we know your husband is an authority on Bakhtin. I said, well, actually, never read a word by Bakhtin. Um, it's been very important to my work, however. They just run in the other direction. This is sexism. It's really nothing but that. And once you realize that sexism is not personal, it's just that they don't well, want the woman doing what you're doing. No, it's not personal. Once I realize it's not personal... It's just I that they I use him. I don't believe you, Siri. I don't believe you that you don't that you don't take it as personal. Because Not I mean, anymore. when this guy, once really? I figured it out, this is the thing. Once you figure it out and you call it out, so there are two parts of this. Mm -hmm. You figure out that it's just sexism. It's nothing that you've, uh, you know. I was. I mean, I've been mad, and I go <laughs> and tell them. Okay. It's such a relief when you, you, you tell them, yeah, you whoever tell. it is, I tell them. You tell them. I tell them, and, you know, it creates some discomfort or embarrassment. <laughs> it does. But then it, may, it, it feels so much better. It's a kind of relief. I think what's terrible is to swallow it. That's what's terrible. So the liberation is that you understand that they're using the closest man to club you over the head, right? It happens to be someone I have enormous respect for and have cared for and been married to for 38 years. And that's um, an awful thing to do. But no, I don't think it's, it's not personal. Well, I mean, feels personal is what I meant. I mean, oh, it's right, not, but it's, it it's simply, it, it can feel personal, but it feels less personal if you point it out and, and say, excuse me, 
What did you just say? That's interesting. Is that what you actually believe? Where did you get that information? You don't have to be, you know, really angry. In fact, being very calm uh, is right usually being very calm is usually more effective. Actually, you write about calmness. Yeah, that combination of authority and calm. Authority That's and really calmness. actually that really works extremely well. And if you're, you know, what it takes I also though. it takes practice. The other thing is that you it, you can enumerating your points is extremely intimidating. One. <laughs> Two, three, four. That works extremely well. I, I advise that. <laughs> no, it's true. So I think there are ways to mitigate that pain. I mean, that, that, I think that's what we're trying to to talk about, right? That um, for years, I thought kind of what's going on here? Why, why is this happening? And once you frame it in cultural terms and you recognize what's being done and you see it being done to other women over and over again, which one does, it becomes a lot less personal, right? It becomes part of, and often this is done unconsciously too, right? And then it's also very important to point it out because if we don't become exquisitely conscious of all this, it will go on. Exquisitely conscious. Yeah, I think really mm -hmm. to a very high exquisite degree. And also I have to say, you know, women do this too. I just... Talk to a, I remember I was doing some Polish interview and the woman said, so, you know, how has it been to be a wife, a mother, and a writer for all these years? And I said, would you ask a man writer that? She said, no. <laughs> you know. I want to swerve back you talked, we talked very briefly about the woman on the other side of the wall, and you yeah. said she was sort of the beginning. She was, yeah. And there's lots to say about Lucy Bright, because she's the opposite of the Baroness. She's sad. She, uh, young S.H. hears her chanting something that she thinks it's a, uh, some she kind of chant. I'm 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 But it's really, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad. People will have to read about Lucy Bright because there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Because there's something, but there's one thing about her that brings me as a reader back to the sort of original man of the story who is in pages not a big part in the book, but right. who seems very important, and that's the father. Yes, I think so. And the reason I mention Lucy Bright is because Lucy Bright, she does chant, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, and she speaks in many voices. Um, but she also whistles. <laughs> and the whistle <laughs> reminds the narrator the, of, of her, her father, father who, yeah, whistles, who whistles, who's a doctor. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very loving 
portrait of the father, and then there's this shard. There's this. Yeah, there's several word. several shards. The, I think the first in that shard, relation. Yeah. Yes, there's one yeah. shard, and then there's several shards, and and the and the image of the father. And the story of the father and the narrator is is broken in many ways. Well, um, yeah. So the the first one is that thing about <laughs> he's a doctor, and she memorizes all the bones in the body. Body. Uh, she's a little typical. girl. She's a little girl, and she proudly presents her knowledge to her father, and he says, "You'll make a fine nurse," <laughs> and it crushes her. And I think, you know, that's one of those examples of, uh, you know, the assumption of these forms of authority that are not available to the little girl, right? And, uh, and it's not malicious, right? The father, in this case, is not trying to hurt the child. That really is not what he wants to do. Um, but that... Uh, relation to the father is, in, I think you're absolutely right, it's a kind of grounding of the book, which treats the role of the father, of the great man, uh, both in history. I mean, the pictures go through that. Einstein, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Duchamp, uh, Paul Dumas, uh, more obscure French uh, theorist, but uh, who... The narrator hears lecture at Columbia, and I did indeed hear lecture at Columbia on exactly that day. There's a lot of historical grounding. Uh, so, absolutely. I, um, so the theme of the fathers keeps returning, of one form of paternalism or another, uh, in different figures in the book. It's relentless, actually. Mm -hmm. Right. So even the novel she's writing, trying to write, mm -hmm. <laughs> which it's is about two teenagers solving a case with no murder, it's kind of, mm -hmm. it's a comic novel. Mm -hmm. But at the end, this, the missing father is then part of that novel, too. And not until she's older is she able to see, to contextualize that story as well. So, yeah. Is the father in the book anything like your father? In some ways he's like my father, in other ways he's not. I mean, there's but, quite a bit about the, um, you know, his physician life, something that I've been very interested in uh, medicine. Uh, so, you know, there are places where they come together and places where they depart which I think is quite but common But did your father say that to you? Or well, he wasn't a doctor. But no, 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 but something No, like actually, that. no, my father never... never I thought, did never, my father say anything like that to me? I mean, that kind right. of, you know... I think what I felt uh, with, in a way, uh, growing up in the world that I grew up in was that the expectations for girls were mm. lower. Mm. You know, my parents were actually very <laughs> open to whatever their four daughters wanted to do. There are four Doras in the little story. But I don't think that, I always thought that if they had had a son, the ambitions 
would have been planted on that poor boy. So it's probably good he was never born. <laughs> uh, and that the girls, you know, there's a double side. In a way, we were freer to pursue. I mean, what if I'd been a, a, a boy who announced when I was 13 that I wanted to be a writer? I'm not so sure my parents would have jumped up and down about that. How he's going to live, how is he going to... You know. But how did you know that expectations to you as a girl? When did you know? I mean, how? What a? I mean, how? It was. You know that? It was all over everywhere. There were no women doctors. There were no women lawyers. Uh, in that little town, you know, girls, girls had to behave. When you, I mean, my parents were actually a little more open than than school, which was. Uh, completely uh, regimented. And, you know, boys, if they won the spelling bee contest, were allowed to jump up and down and scream for joy. And the girls, if you even smiled, it was horror because you were gloating. So uh, those are just examples of things. And I do think, you know, you know, I, I remember, but this is a different kind of thing that my father once, I gave him something I had written, and he just completely corrected the whole thing. I mean, it was, he rewrote it. I was like in How the fifth grade. Fifth I was grade. little. I was little. <laughs> I never gave him anything again. <laughs> Only after the fact, you know, after I could so, show some. That was it. So, you know, that was a kind of awful experience. But it's a little different. But you know, I'm. this book is about the, and I think he was, I mean, as all uh, the fathers of the period, he, he uh, lived a position of his own authority and expected deference from the people around him. Mm. This is not unusual for no. the time, or even now. It's beautiful. The girl <laughs> says, I will read my way far beyond my father. Yeah. So again, this belief. I could tell you writing <laughs> and writing, yes? Yeah. Okay, when I was quite little, but I was older than 11, I think I was maybe 14, and my father said, I've always understood the two first stages of Kierkegaard's philosophy, but I never understood the religious stage. And I remember thinking, I am. I'm going to understand it. <laughs> so, don't think there isn't competition between... Don't think there aren't Oedipal stories between daughters and fathers. There are. And that was fun. I mean, I remember this very, I mean, it's ridiculous. But it tells you something. How long did your father, when, when did he pass away? Uh, he died early in 2004. Are you still writing about him are you still is there still is that competition still going on in some way um, is, 
and no, is writing not these in books that way. A part I of think that? no, I don't think so. I think um, that I dreamed about my father for years after he had died, actually. So, you know, we never let go. I think of beloved people, people who were attached to, and. Um, even, I mean, he was 81 years old, so, you know, he was not a young man. I had had him for a long time. Uh, but these are, I do think these are very, very important relations and that you uh, live with the ghosts of those important people uh, even after they're dead. Absolutely. I'm sure I will live with uh, uh, versions of my father uh, until I die. The thing is that, uh, again, I, I guess I'm trying to tell you that as a 64-year-old woman, um, what I think I have been able to do uh, emotionally is embrace the ambivalence of all uh, passions, all great love relations that we have with our mothers, our fathers, our siblings, our spouses. There's always ambivalence. And uh, there's always gray. Right? And uh, that, that in itself is a kind of, I think, victory um, of, of maturity. That some people never get to, I think, right? Well, yeah. I think, I think I want to say thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. And I want to thank you for this conversation and for your book and for being here. Thank you very much, Siri, who's that? And thank you for your good questions. Thank you. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.